Today's episode is brought to you by Normal Now, a campaign powered by Electrify America. Because some people think electric cars are just a weird new trend, but the truth is, they're normal now. Welcome to Skim This. This week, we caught up with the head of the National Institutes of Health to ask the question on everyone's mind. When are we going to have a COVID vaccine? No spoilers just yet, but something could get approved pretty soon. Except having a normal holiday season is probably off the table until most of us can receive that vaccine, which is really upsetting to think about. So stick around for some tips about dealing with the challenge of getting through the coming months. Then we'll recap a busy week of hearings for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Amy Coney Barrett. And just for fun, we've got the inside scoop on how to connect with a cat, especially if you're a dog person alone in a room with this. When is this gonna be over? Can this just end already? The long national and really global nightmare of COVID couldn't end soon enough. And the answer we most often hear to our impatient questions is that it all depends on when we have a vaccine. Okay, so when is that? Answering with any certainty is impossible. But this week, we asked some pretty knowledgeable people anyway to try and get a sense of what we can expect. The FDA guy is going to call me in a couple minutes, but let's see how far we get. (laughs) That's Dr. Francis Collins. He's the director of the National Institutes of Health, and he's Anthony Fauci's boss. So Tony works for me. We talk virtually every night. Collins has a lot of big things on his plate. You know, hunting for new treatments for cancer or Alzheimer's and overseeing clinical trials for a COVID-19 vaccine. Four of those vaccines are currently in phase three clinical trials, which is one of the last steps in the vaccine development process. Two more could get to that step soon. And while there's a lot of other info we need to touch on about COVID vaccines, Let's start with the question on all of our minds. When are we going to have one? I'm guardedly optimistic the answer is going to be by the end of this year. There's a lot to unpack there, but what Collins is saying is great news. And even if that prediction is off by a few months, it's still a huge deal. Since vaccines normally take years and years and sometimes even decades to be developed. Generally, once you've decided that you're going to try to develop a vaccine, you're talking about anywhere from four to 10 years uh, before you'd actually be in the position of saying, I think we have something that works. And to be now in phase three trials, the first of which began at the end of July, is just breathtaking. You might have seen headlines this week about a major COVID vaccine trial being put on hold. On Monday, the drug company Johnson & Johnson said they hit the pause button after a clinical trial participant had an unexplained illness. This is now the second time a major clinical trial of a COVID vaccine has been paused because of safety concerns. But instead of necessarily being a bad thing, Colin says odds are this health issue probably wasn't caused by the vaccine. And if that's the case, the clinical trial should restart soon. Also, he thinks acting with caution sends an important signal to the public that the government isn't rushing an unproven vaccine out the door. Every step that's involved with testing safety and testing efficacy has been done as rigorously or more rigorously than we've ever done with any other vaccine. And speaking of doing things in a more rigorous manner than they've ever done before, Collins says there are several reasons a COVID-19 vaccine is likely to be discovered so quickly. 
First, the U.S. government has been throwing tons of money at the search for a vaccine. So far, the tab is up to around $10 billion and will probably increase. The second reason the hunt for a vaccine is going so quickly involves bypassing some bureaucratic red tape. The government sped up the process of awarding research money to companies working on a vaccine. It also hedged its bets, funding six different vaccine teams that are using three different scientific strategies to find their vaccines. And finally, the government is also paying to produce millions of doses of vaccines that haven't even been approved yet. If a vaccine isn't effective, the federal government, which also means taxpayers, will be out quite a lot of money on this. And a lot of unusable vaccines are going to end up in the trash. Literally. How many trash bags do you need for that? Anyway, the upside is pretty obvious. If one of these pre-manufactured vaccines does end up being approved, we don't have to sit around and wait for millions of doses to be produced. We have truncated so many uh, of those uh, sort of dead times in between steps and have moved this forward in a fashion that is unprecedented. But we need to be clear about something super important, which is that having a vaccine doesn't necessarily mean that you and I will receive a vaccine right away. Collins says the current plan is to give out any approved vaccines to higher-risk individuals first. The plan isn't totally worked out yet, but some of the first batches are likely to go to the elderly, people with pre-existing conditions, health workers, and certain minority groups that are more likely to have jobs that don't allow them to work from home. As he said earlier, Collins thinks some of those people could start getting an approved vaccine within the next few months. But that's just the very start of a long vaccination process. At what point will it be safe to say we can go back to life as usual? It's going to take a while. If anybody thinks that the day we have a vaccine that's judged safe and effective, we can all just go back to doing what we were doing in 2019, that isn't going to work. You really have to get to the point where you have reduced uh, the number of uh, potentially infectable people uh, down to maybe 20% or so. Then, then you've got what you could call herd immunity. Put it another way, once 80% of the U.S. population has either been vaccinated or has already contracted and recovered from COVID, Collins says that's closer to the time we can take off our masks and yell, we did it. But that's a lot of people, you know, that would be somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 300 million people in the U.S. would need to be immune in order to get to that point. I think there's a fair chance uh, we can get there by next summer but I don't think we'll get there a lot sooner than that. Okay, did you just feel that? That rush of excitement at the thought we might have a vaccine by the end of the year, followed by despair hearing that normal is still months and months away at the earliest? Us too. And Collins thinks there's no easy way around this, except to try as hard as we possibly can to be practical and safe. People are so tired of this. Unfortunately, the virus is not tired of us, uh, but we're tired of it. And if we relax our guard prematurely, uh, then all of the promise of getting past this uh, will be squashed. So it is going to require from all Americans and not just those at high risk, but particularly the people who are late in the queue uh, to get vaccinated because they weren't at high risk, they're still gonna need to practice good public health measures. We'll still be wanting people to wear masks and practice social distancing and avoid indoor gatherings well into next year. And it would be good for everybody despite the sort of 
disappointment that may go along with that realization to kind of get our heads around it and say, we're in for this. This is the way that all of us can actually save lives. And by doing so every day, even though it's tiresome, imagine what you are doing. You are protecting people from a terrible outcome. So remember as a kid when one parent didn't tell you what you wanted, so you asked the other one? So my name is Calypso Cholkidu. I'm uh, the Director for Global Health Policy at the Center for Global Development. Chalkidu and a team of researchers in the UK just published a major report on the status of COVID vaccine work being done all over the world. Get this, there are at least 235 vaccines being worked on, and Chalkidu's team looked at the funding and other resources being dedicated to each one of those. They looked at how each aspiring COVID vaccine works, and then they asked experts to help figure out more subjective things, like how likely each vaccine was to succeed. You get the point. Then they fed all that data into a series of simulations. And the simulation showed the most likely month for the first vaccine to be approved is this coming February. So maybe you'll have something more to celebrate than just Valentine's Day. And just like Collins, Chalky Do is focused on when we finish mass distribution of a vaccine, not just the day when a vaccine is approved. For the whole of the world to be vaccinated, So we're looking at 18 billion doses. That's what the World Health Organization suggested is needed, given wastage and about two two doses per person. That's unlikely to happen before the end of 2023. So, you know, despite the shrinking of the timelines, we're looking at another two to three years of efforts to basically get the vaccine out there, distribute it to people, give it to give both doses to people to get everybody uh, vaccinated. That same model predicts the U.S. and other wealthy countries might be fully vaccinated by the end of next year. But it's hard to know what back to normal will feel like if that doesn't apply to the whole world. And back here in the U.S., Collins thinks getting back to normal has become even more complicated now that some of the best ways of responding to this pandemic have become politicized. The idea that wearing a mask should be somehow affected by your political party is one of the craziest things that I can ever imagine seeing. I am not a political animal. I don't belong to any political party. I don't think of myself as in any way attached uh, political views. But as a public health person, as a physician, to see the way this has all gotten tangled up in politics is just crazy. And it is causing people to get sick and people to die. And Collins hopes political leaders will take the lead in modeling responsible behavior, which is something that's made headlines recently for the wrong reasons. After a crowded White House event to unveil the president's Supreme Court nominee reportedly led to the infection of more than 10 people. The recent event in the Rose Garden, which uh, Tony Fauci has now referred to as a super spreading event, I think with good evidence, uh, we shouldn't be doing that. That is just asking for trouble. So what's the skim? There's some hope on the horizon. Researchers told us the search for a COVID-19 vaccine is going really well. A process that normally takes years at least is being accelerated at a historic pace. The first vaccine in the U.S. could win regulatory approval by the end of this year. And more conservative estimates show it's possible that the U.S. and other high-income countries could be fully vaccinated by the end of next year. But no matter how historically fast that might be, it still hurts to hear that we may have to wait until 80% of the U.S. is vaccinated or immune to COVID before things go back to normal and maybe even longer for the rest of the world to go back to normal. And Dr. Collins admits 
He's worried how people will respond when they're told, this is gonna be your life for a little while longer. For a lot of us, we're not really used to having to be this patient and to plan around something that seems so far away. And as Collins watches COVID cases on the rise in 36 states, and with the holidays approaching, he thinks we could have a problem on our hands. Well, it is clear that people gathering, particularly indoors, without masks, in closed spaces with poor ventilation, is a super spreader opportunity just waiting to happen. And of course, weddings and family reunions are a place where that can readily happen. It's just not worth the risk to do that. It is simply uh, taking uh, a risk that is potentially going to hurt somebody, and we ought not uh, to do so so casually, as often now seems to be the case. Hey, that was a lot. Are you still with us? Quarantining has been tough for all of us. And plenty of us had been hoping that the holidays would be our chance to finally do something normal. Hug our grandparents, cook big family meals together, and share our thoughts on what we're grateful for. But hearing that spending Thanksgiving with family could turn into a super spreader event, well, that has us thinking twice about how we might spend the holidays. Everybody has a different risk kind of benefit analysis right here. And so you have to do what's, what's right for you based on your family, your personal situation and where you are. Dr. Vale Wright is the Senior Director for Healthcare Innovation at the American Psychological Association. She says that talking to relatives who you haven't seen in months about choosing not to visit them this year could bring up a lot of emotions for everyone. I'm pretty close to my mom. She's 85 years old, and it was really hard to tell her that um, I wasn't going to come for Thanksgiving. I think what, what really tugged at my heartstrings was I could, I could hear the disappointment in her voice. Wright feels like she's making the best choice possible for everyone's safety, but that doesn't mean it's an easy decision to make. Like a lot of us, she's trying to carry two sets of feelings, her own and a family member's. This is a loss to not be able to spend time with family. Um, and so just sort of sitting with your grief, allowing you to feel sort of grief, which can include sadness, it can include frustration, um, it can include kind of this fatigue. And feelings are only half the battle. It can be even harder to stick to your decision if your relatives react in ways you maybe don't expect when you bring up the subject. It's really important to just start planning ahead. Plan ahead for how you're gonna have these conversations. You might, you know, have a couple of, of sort of standard responses like, you know, I'm really sorry that you're angry right now. I feel frustrated too. Wright says there are ways to soften the blow. It's about trying to figure out what's a new thing that you can do that, you know, even though people are disappointed, you're still showing how much you care. Figuring out what activities you most enjoy during the holidays means you can think about how to recreate them. I have a colleague who um, their tradition the day before is to make pies together. They're not going to do that in person, but they're going to do a pie-making group Zoom. It could even be a good opportunity to rethink regular holiday traditions, like replacing the overeating and overspending that we normally do by default with the moments that we really value. Really what you like about the holidays is that moment before the meal starts when everyone goes around the table and says what they're grateful for. You can recreate that virtually pretty easily. And while we're thinking about it, you don't need to wait for Thanksgiving to consciously practice gratitude for the little things in your life. In fact, research tells us 
Doing this can help fight feelings of loneliness and boost well-being. But even after all of that, you might still feel kind of blue on the day or in the days after a big holiday. Wright says, letting yourself feel what you're feeling is necessary. And if you think dealing with your mental health might get really tricky, it's worth preparing for that too. That can mean talking to family, friends, or even taking slightly more formal steps. I think it's the quiet moments that sometimes matter the most. Knowing if, you know, for example, that you have a tendency towards depression even during normal times this time of year, it might make sense to connect with a therapist now. Lastly, Wright says, keep things in perspective. It's not going to feel like this forever. I know it feels like it's going to always be like this, but feelings aren't facts. And, you know, this holiday might look different, but next year might be, you know, back to normal. Some people think electric cars are weird, but when you think about it, it used to seem pretty weird to get your news from a little voice coming out of your headphones, too. Like podcasts, electric cars are normal now. With longer ranges, you can take them just about anywhere. And with lots of charging stations and faster charging times, it's easy to charge up on the way. Plus, with lots of affordable models and less routine maintenance, electric cars may actually save you money. Find out more about how electric cars are normal at normalnow.com. All eyes were on Judge Amy Coney Barrett this week during her confirmation hearing on Capitol Hill. President Trump's nominee to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the Supreme Court sat through hours of questioning this week from senators on the Judiciary Committee. And if you saw the headlines, you may have read that ACB was pretty tight-lipped when it came to, well, almost everything. I can't offer an opinion on recusal if that question ever came before me. I would need to hear arguments from the litigants. Typically, confirmation hearings are a way for senators to learn about a nominee's judicial philosophy and possibly get a sneak peek of how they'd rule on certain issues. This time, given Barrett's potentially conservative leanings, it's the Democrats with most of the questions. But ACB said she wasn't there to give any previews. And by the way, She's far from the only justice who said no spoilers. RBG famously said she wouldn't reveal how she might rule on key issues during her own confirmation hearing. Although, she did go on to answer some of the Senate's questions pretty directly. And years later, Justice Elena Kagan used RBG's no-forecast rule to justify her decision not to preview how she'd rule during her Senate confirmation hearings. But when the stakes of a Supreme Court nomination are so high, senators still try to get something out of the nominees, leaving all of us to read between the lines to make some predictions about how a judge might rule in the future. So what were people watching for this week? The first major thing, the Affordable Care Act. As a reminder, there's kind of a tight deadline on this one because the ACA is supposed to be argued in the Supreme Court right after election day. So if ACB is on the bench and wearing a robe by then, she could have a huge say in whether millions of people can keep their health insurance. And that has Democrats worried. Because back in 2017, Barrett criticized a previous SCOTUS ruling that upheld the ACA. This week, Barrett said, don't count me in or out. Your concern is that because I critiqued the statutory reasoning that I'm hostile to the ACA, and I assure you that I am not. 
also under a microscope this week, ACB's stance on abortion rights. Democratic senators in particular tried to nail down Barrett's views on Roe v. Wade, the case that protects the right to abortion. ACB has ruled on two abortion access cases since she's been a federal judge, and both times she was in favor of greater restrictions. We already knew about those cases before the confirmation process, but now Democrats are also pointing to a newly unearthed newspaper ad that Barrett signed back in 2006, which called for overturning Roe v. Wade and its, quote, barbaric legacy. Democrats like California Senator Dianne Feinstein tried to get ACB to elaborate on where she really stands, but Barrett didn't bite. Do you agree with Justice Scalia's view that Roe was wrongly decided? <clears throat> Senator, I completely understand why you are asking the question, but again, I can't pre-commit or say, yes, I'm going in with some agenda because I'm not. Notably, Barrett did decline to call the Roe decision super precedent, meaning a ruling the Supreme Court won't revisit. But she also didn't say how she'd vote if it did come up. So consider us right back where we started on this. The final thing Dems pressed her on? The 2020 election. That's because there's been a concern among Democrats that Trump putting ACB on the court right now, during an election he's competing in, might be his way of trying to secure her support if the election results are up in the air. So Dems really wanted Barrett to commit to recusing herself if there's confusion over the vote count and the Supreme Court ends up having a role in deciding the winner. This week, ACB told senators that she had no conversations with the president about any 2020 election cases. But she made it clear she didn't like what Democrats were suggesting. I certainly hope that all members of the committee have more confidence in my integrity than to think that I would allow myself to be used as a pawn to decide this election for the American people. But the final thing that made headlines this week wasn't one of the issues. Can you hold up what you've been referring to in answering our questions? <laughs> Is there anything on it? Uh, that letterhead that says United States Senate. That's right. ACB made it through her confirmation hearing without referencing any notes. So we know Barrett is good under pressure, but where does this leave us on her nomination? Even though Democrats didn't get most of their questions answered, it'll likely have little or no impact on whether or not Barrett is confirmed to the bench. Remember, the White House and the Republican-controlled Senate are pushing for her confirmation to happen before the November election. And with a first vote to approve her nomination expected next Thursday, October 22nd, Justice Barrett may be putting on her robe very soon. Before we go, <coughs> let's face it, you're either a cat person or a dog person. Me, I'm a dog person. And I know I'm not alone in this. Years ago, people used to believe a cat was the devil in disguise. I'm beginning to think they were right. Jesus, what the hell's wrong with it? It's a cat. That's what's wrong with it. Oh, hi, kitty, kitty. Hi, little fella. But what if this whole time, we just got cats wrong? A group of psychologists and animal behavior scientists from the universities of Portsmouth and Sussex might have cracked the code to bonding with cats and turning this 
into this. And it turns out it has to do with eye contact, specifically what scientists call the slow blink sequence. That involves slowly blinking, then narrowing your eyes at the cat, who then slowly blinks back at you. Sounds pretty easy, right? After this exchange of slow blinking, the scientists found cats were more likely to approach them or their owners compared to just having a neutral expression. That finding suggests that while cats find a direct stare a bit threatening, narrowing or closing your eyes helps signal, we're good. So let's be honest, when it comes to movies, cats don't exactly have the best rep. I don't think Greg will be playing with Jinxie too much. He hates cats. <laughs> Pam, I don't, I don't hate cats. I just happen to be more of a dog lover. That's yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's okay if you hate cats, Greg. But it turns out, like a lot of relationships, it boils down to communication issues. One of the doctors in the study said that by getting a feel for the positive ways that cats and humans can communicate, we can improve how we understand cats and how to better look out for their welfare in settings like animal shelters and at the vet. So when it comes to building that perfect bond, yeah, we went there, you probably just have to put in some time, effort, and some strategic eye contact. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. And I'm your host, Justine Davey. We'll be back in your feed again next week. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. <laughs>